Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Bishan Yang. She is a postdoc fellow at Carnegie Mellon University, working with Professor Tom Mitchell. She completed her PhD in the Department of Computer Science at Cornell University in August 2015. The theme of her research has been developing effective machine learning models for semantic structure extraction from natural language text. Today, we'll talk with Bishan about her email P17 paper titled A Joint Sequential and Relational Model for Frame Semantic Parsing with Tom Mitchell. The paper proposes a new method for frame semantic parsing, which combines modeling token sequences and directly modeling the relation between predicates and arguments and uses knowledge distillation to integrate the two modeling components. Could you explain what, uh, what the task uh, this paper is trying to do to address and uh, what are the, what's the motivation for doing this work? Sure. Yeah, just let me maybe briefly describe the frame semantic parsing task. So the task, the goal is basically try to map the meaning of a natural language sentence to some sort of structure representation called semantic frames. For example, if the sentence is uh, Wally bought mad a pizza, then the sentence describes the buying event, which can be represented as a frame. And Wally here is the buyer and Matt is the receiver or recipient. And the pizza here is the good that, be, uh, that is being bought. So we are trying to build a machine learning model that can automatically uh, extract such semantic frames from sentences. And the semantic frames can capture things like events, properties, and relations. So it's not necessary that the predicate has to be a verb. It could also be a noun or adjective. So that's basically the task. And uh, typically, this task uh, has been addressed using a pipeline kind of approach where people will uh, decompose the task into two stages. Uh, the first stage is frame identification. So I will, in the paper I described in the introduction, it's actually three stages. So you need to first identify the predicate, like which words in the sentence is actually a, a predicate. And in this paper, we kind of skip the stage because in practice, in this data set, there, uh, people have shown that there's not enough regularities for a machine learning model to pick up that. So I was just focusing on the other two stages. So suppose the, the predicate or words are given in the sentence. You can identify this using a lexicon and things like that. And then the first stage would be uh, disambiguating which frame types uh, each predicate is evoking. So, for example, the word, it's like a word disambiguation task, right? So given the same word, it can trigger in different frames given different context. And the second stage would be given the frame types that's already disambiguated, uh, extracting the semantic roles that are associated with the uh, with the frame types. So in the introduction, there's a of the paper, there's an example where the sentence we decided to treat the patient with combination chemotherapy. In the sentence, there are two predicates, decided and treat. Each predicate evoke, is evoking different types of frames. And uh, given different frame types, there are different text bands in the sentence that are filling different roles with respect to the frames. So it's basically a structure prediction task. 
where the structure can be fairly complex, uh, may not be tractable in practice. So this, this is what makes the problem interesting. And this paper uh, tried to modeling the frame types and semantic roles jointly. Also, we are introducing these integrated model that combines sequential and relational neural networks to predict the semantic roles better. May I clarify something about the task? So the predicate, can it be multiple words or is it always one word uh, like a verb or an adjective? So in a sentence, there could be multiple words that are predicates. You can, each word in the sentence can potentially be a predicate. The predicate is something that can evoke a semantic frame that is defined in FrameNet. So in FrameNet, there are about like thousand frame types. And uh, is the predicate always annotated as one of the trigger words for the frame? Or are there predicates which are not associated with any frame? So you you potentially can match it to any frame in the entire FrameNet. So there will be words in a sentence that will not trigger any frames. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't clarify my question. Given a particular predicate, that uh, so that's your input, and it was annotated with a part, with a particular uh, frame in FrameNet. Uh, my question is whether you know this information. You know that this frame is one of the candidate frames for this predicate, or are there cases where the predicate can be matched to any frame in the entire lexicon? I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. In the experiments, actually, I show that. Yeah, this is a very good question. So in FrameNet, there, uh, there is a lexicon. Uh, basically, it's a list of words and associated with all the possible frame types that can evoke by that verb or word, not necessarily verb. So for example, the word treat can evoke like, like a cure frame, like related to medical treatment. It could also evolve uh, like a giving frame. For example, like she treat herself to a theater, things like that. Where do these frames come from? So those frames are manually defined uh, by people who build frame nets. So they basically define uh, thousands of semantic frames that are uh, actually, cap uh, in FrameNet, I actually capture most of the frequent uh, words, I think, in English. But but still, there is a coverage problem because if the test sentence is uh, has a word that has never been appeared in FrameNet, then maybe, yeah, the model currently cannot make a judgment. Yeah, this, this seems like a, a pretty not very scalable meaning representation. I guess when I think of semantic role labeling this task, I think syntax or dependency parsing or constituency parsing is trying to figure out the structure of the sentence. But the whole point of the structure of the sentence is to let you know who did what to whom. And that's what semantic role labeling is really trying to get at, the core mm -hmm. meaning, uh, the semantics behind the sentence. And one issue I think with FrameNet is that it tries to be too explicit, maybe like it tries to define by yeah. hand this set of possible things that are, that possible meaning representations that you can have, and then you have to like map into this set. And so this this is inherently limited in its scope because there are going to be things that just never were thought of in FrameNet. Like I don't yeah, know. you're right. 
But I think in the train net research area, I think people have realized this problem. The people have come up with different type of solutions to expand the lexicon, for example, and, and the new way to learn new frames, things like that. Yeah, so, but the, uh, regarding the uh, the other type of semantic role labeling, prop bank style semantic role labeling, where you, the semantic roles are very generic, like you only have like agent, patient, instrument, things like that. I think the advantage of FrameNet is that it, it captures much richer semantics than that. So it actually goes to the event level and you can have all kinds of interesting relations that can you, def- you can define over FrameNet. When I think about applications, if I want to use the semantic parse to uh, like feed it as instructions to, do, to automate a, sort of a certain task, if we can do the FrameNet parsing, uh, accurately or like let me say if we can do both probank style and framenet style parsing uh, with the same accuracy i would rather mm-hmm. have framenet uh, framenet parsing because it's much easier to convert the semantic parse into an an, an instruction uh, so I, I do see the value and if you actually care about a particular like a domain you can increase the coverage of framenet you can annotate a bunch of examples uh, specifically for your to, to, to complement this, this coverage gap. And I think, I do think there, there are many applications where this is going to be a good. Um... Yeah, that, that's totally fair. I wasn't trying to be too hard on FrameNet. I guess this, you see the same trade-off in knowledge-based construction or relation extraction. So we have I, notions of open information extraction that, that just find also it's looking for predicate argument structure really in sentences similar to I, even this distinction between open information extraction and typical relation extraction is almost exactly the same distinction that prop bank and frame make. Yeah, similar. Yeah. And certainly, like I'm like thinking about semantic parsing these days, where not frame semantic parsing, but like to an actual a formal language, and there you have the same kind of recall trade-offs. So right. yeah, cer- certainly I see value in particular applications where you have a formal representation. Right. So a question for you, Pishan. Technically, uh, given these differences between how ProBank and FreeNet define their uh, semantic parses. What does this mean for the semantic parser? Uh, like, is it can you do the same thing for both? You mentioned in the in the paper some interesting differences. For example, the number of unique roles, semantic roles that are in each of the two frame, uh, frameworks. Yeah, that's a good question. So in this work, uh, what we found is that. This, this particular model that we're proposing. So this is a joint model that tried to do all these things jointly. It actually has much, provides more benefits when it applies to FrameNet versus PropBank. So the same type of model architecture can be applied to both tasks. Um, but since in FrameNet, these semantic constraints are much richer. So for example, you can have things like given a, a particular role can only involve in certain frames. For example, like fire can only uh, involve in commercial commercial frames, but not like treatment frames, for example. And you can incorporate these kind of constraints. And also, the uh, in in a particular frame, different roles are also highly dependent. These kind of dependencies actually make these joint model more attractive. So in experiments, we also show that the performance uh, gains on FrameNet is much, much larger than on the prop bank style semantic labeling task. 
What do you mean by dependencies uh, between the different arguments in the same frame? Are you, do you mean that like that you have overlapping constraints, or uh, is there something else? Oh yeah, so we actually consider four types of constraints. The two, the argument overlapping constraints are typical constraints that people encoded for semantic labeling. And there's another one that's typically used is like given a frame, the core rows, meaning the rows that are necessarily occur, cannot repeat. You can only have one and only one core rows given a frame. These kind of constraints is within frame constraints. And we introduced two uh, additional constraints that can uh, operate cross frames. So like an argument span can play roles in different frames, right? And we want them to be consistent. Uh, for example, like a person cannot, uh, a person argument cannot be, or play a person role and like a weapon role at the same time, right? Uh, in different frames. And uh, another uh, new constraint is to incorporating dependencies between frame types and symmetric roles. As I said before, in FrameNet, there's this natural constraint that these roles are defined with, with respect to certain frames. So you can constrain that given the frame, there's only these kind of roles that can occur, not the others. Well, how do you know that uh, a particular role in one frame, like person or like contributor, would contradict with another role in a different frame for the same sentence, like a weapon in a crime? Yeah, yeah. So uh, currently, we just use a very, very simple method because in FrameNet, there's no notion of entity types. So there's no annotation uh, for these type typing information. So what we did is at the very surface level, we go, uh, we look at the names, <laughs> the naming of these roles. If this role has contained the, the word person, then we think that this is, this role actually indicates that, you know, it's an entity type. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, describe the like the different components in your model, uh, the sequential and the additional parts. Sure. So, so the sequential model we're referring to this uh, deep bidirectional LSTM model uh, that has been recently shown that it's very powerful for uh, the semantic role labeling task. I know that you also implemented in Allen NLP. So this is basically the same model that predicts semantic roles on a word-by-word -word basis. So basically you break down the phrase level annotation into word-level labels by using this BIO tagging scheme, like beginning and you know, inside and outside of the role. And that model conditions on the on the frame? Yes, this model is conditioned on the frame type. And and we add a CRF layer on top that better model the transition probability. So uh, the relational model is a basically very simple fee-forward neural network that predict predict a label for a pair of argument span and a predicate. It basically operates at the span level. It does, uh, it, it learns or directly learns a representation for an argument span and also uh, capture features like dependency path and a word between the argument span and predicate, like incorporate these features to learn a better uh, predictor of the role labels, semantic role. This is also conditioned on the frame, frame types. So to combine these two models, since they have very different architectures, 
very different training objectives. Um, I mean, one simple way to combine them is like, okay, I train them jointly. But I, I did try that. I didn't find much improvement uh, using that method because both uh, the only sharing parameter is the word embeddings, and there's not much constraints that enforcing them to uh, the dependency between them. So, so basically, I the model uh, we propose is to basically transfer the knowledge from the sequence model to the relational model. So at the end, you still have a relational model training objective. But you add a regularizer that are regular that it's a KO divergence of the model uh, distribution and the posterior distribution extracted from the sequence model, sequential model. So this this sounds really similar to me to model distillation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah, that's inspired by that. Could you explain the idea of model distillation for people who aren't familiar with it? So it's Basically, for example, when you combine different, try to combine different uh, models in an ensemble way, for example, to make the, your, your final model will have better performance. A more uh, efficient way to do that is to, at the end, only train very smaller models, but in the smaller mod model, you will encourage the smaller model to have a posterior that's close to the, the other model. Right. So if you look at leaderboards these days, at the top of any leaderboard is a huge ensemble where we've trained an identical model several times with different random seeds and combined their predictions at the end. And this gives us better performance because there's a lot of variance mm -hmm. in yeah. small details that each of the models picks up on. And so it, this is all well and good, but if you want to efficiently run predictions, you running this huge ensemble can be really time consuming. Yes. And this, like, if you want a prediction on a mo mobile device, you want the performance of the big ensemble, but the size yeah. of a smaller model. So you can do an objective very, very similar to what you did, right? To, to get the same performance or similar performance from a much smaller model. It's really fascinating to me that this even works. It <laughs> says something about our ability to do optimization, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, maybe it has a similar appeal to like regularization as well. So... Yeah, it works pretty well. So just to clarify, so you first train the the sequential model? Yes. After you're done with training it, you use it as a in a in a kernel term to help train the relational model. The relational model. model. Yes. And after the relational model is trained, you no longer need the sequential model. You don't yes. use it anymore for inference eventually. You only you're use right. the relational. Okay. Cool. You're right. How does it compare to just like averaging the two models or you mentioned also jointly training them? I'm not sure what you meant by that. Yeah, so jointly training them just meaning that you directly combine the objective, training objective of these two models and you optimize, you do gradient descent optimization together. Um, that doesn't work. It doesn't improve much, actually, because uh, in this joint model, first of all, the parameter is much, you have much, much more number of parameters and you have the limited training sets. So and, and and also because these two training objectives does not share much not much parameter sharing except for embeddings. That's our observation. So in this using this uh technique um we propose we found that it performs better than both training sequence model and relational model alone. Yeah. So I'm not sure about 
what you mean by averaging two models because these two models output very different. Oh, oh no, I, I just meant uh, after you find the uh, marginal distribution, measure probability for each uh, role for a particular mm -hmm. span, you can then average uh, this because it's like the theme units that you, that the relational model is predicting. I see. Yeah, actually, I didn't try that. Yeah, I, I would imagine it would be. Yeah, I, I actually didn't try that. <laughs> That's an interesting point. <laughs> Uh, cool. And uh, you, uh, I think you also have a part in the paper that describes the frame. How do you you predict the frames and then how you integrate? Yeah. So for the frame identification, it's a very simple feed-forward neural network that uh, uh, learned the feature embeddings for like the, the predicate and the surrounding words and uh, dependence, things like that, uh, use very standard features. So and that part, we do pretty well. Uh, just the frame edit identification model alone, uh, we compared to the existing state of the art, it's a compa uh, comparable. And after that, we since we have the frame uh, model, frame ad identification model, and the semantic role labeling model, we formulate a joint inference objective. So basically, trying to find the jointly uh, find the assignments of frame types and Role labels. So it's basically you can treat these as a vector graph. Uh, you're trying to find the joint assignments of different uh, variables with respect to some constraints. So the constraints here I mentioned before, you have uh, constraints between the frame labels and role uh, role labels and between role labels, and these can all be Encode it using a framework called AD3, alternating directions, dual decomposition. So it's basically a tool uh, that can efficiently solve uh, LP relaxation problems. So yeah, that's how we do the optimization at the end. And uh, how do you get the set of candidates? So do you, I imagine one possibility for you to, would be to uh, get all the, uh, like uh, the top, K candidate frames, and then for each of the frames, you feed it into uh, the relational model to get candidate predictions for the arguments, and then you feed all these yes. to the AD cube. Is that what you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah, we do uh, use candidates because enumerating all possible argument spans is too expensive, and we do use the top K. We describe in the experiment. I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, cool. So, uh, what are the main highlights in the experimental results? So, we compare this. Or first, in the experiments, we first compare the uh, joint sequential and relational model with the sequential model and relational model alone, uh, and we show performance improvements on that on uh, semantic role labeling. And then we compare this joint inference objective, where we do the frame. Identification and symmetrical labeling uh, jointly, and we get a further boost on performance on FrameNet. So, in the in table two, where you describe only the results for arguments, the F1 score you get is sixty-five, and that's given uh, gold gold frames. Is that right? Yeah, you're right. So, but, you're but right. then in the in table four, where you do you where you predict everything, the F1 score is even higher. So how how come predicting the frames ah, give us yeah, better yeah. results? So 
there is a uh, yeah the, the F one here actually means different things. So in table two, the F one means uh, just by exactly matching the spans or only measure the accuracy on of the row labels. In table four, the F one is combining is actually taking into account both the frame type accuracy, the frame identification accuracy, and the row labeling accuracy. So since the frame identification accuracy is like almost 90. So this is, I had a question earlier also. So it, you have prop bank experiments also. So for, uh, if you remember the difference between prop bank and frame that is very similar to this notion of like open information extraction versus closed relation extraction, where like we, we think we know what the frames mean and we don't really think, we don't have a strong notion of what the prop bank roles mean. And you say that the adding your constraints on roles, where like if I know that something is a weapon, I'm pretty sure it's not also going to be a person. This helps in FrameNet, but it doesn't really help in propping, right? Yeah, because in propping, I don't have these kind of constraints. I thought that was kind of interesting, actually. Like, uh, it shows one of the benefits, as Waleed said, of this more closed domain in that... Yeah. If all you have is a vague notion of agent and patient, where if you're not familiar with those terms, agent is is the, the thing that does something, the, like, typically the subject of a verb, and patient is like the prototypical object of a verb. Things can be objects in one of one verb and subjects of another verb without really any trouble. And so if, if your only information is at the level of agent and patient, you're going to have a hard time even coming up with any reasonable constraints. But if I have more information from FrameNet, I can, yeah, you're right. I can do a lot better by imposing these constraints. So yeah, that, I thought that was a really good in, insight that you made. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's important why this task is feasible, right? It's like I I I think FrameNet is much smaller in number of training instances than PropBank. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you're right. so I, it's kind of surprising to me that we were even able to achieve sixty five percent on argument. Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, it's not. Great still, but um, yeah, it's interesting. All right, so you have any last thoughts uh, you'd like to mention before we conclude? No, I think we pretty much cover everything that I want. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Vishen, it has been a great pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for having me.